Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 540. And today I'm joined by Emerald Fennell, who is one of my favourite, or before this podcast, was one of my favourite writers and directors and actors, and is now also just one of my favourite people to talk to, because this was a joy. I say it all the time, but you never know how press junket things are going to go, because got a limited amount of time and you don't know if there's going to be the connection particularly over zoom but this was one of the easiest conversations i've ever had emerald made their feature film debut as a writer and director with promising young woman a couple of years back which won an oscar and is amazing if you've not already watched that what's wrong with you i've talked about it on here numerous times it's a wonderful movie and their new film saltburn comes out on the 17th so this weekend and i absolutely adored it i really encourage you to get out and see it i've seen so many good things in this the cinema recently saltburn is amazing how to have sex is amazing bottoms is amazing get in the cinema and support independent film man there's some good stuff coming from some powerful voices before we get into the podcast chat itself though we are brought to you as ever by speechdevelopmentrecords.com that's where you can buy all my merch and support the podcast by getting good stuff yourself is it announced yet it's not no i'm not going to announce it i've got some some news about the website that i might mention in next week's episode but i'm staying quiet for now yeah i am going to stay quiet we're also brought to you by patreon.com forward slash scrubius pip where you can support the podcast just through throwing some change at me as I wriggle on this audio podium for you. And then twitch.tv forward slash Scrubius Pipio, which is connected to the thing I was going to announce about the web store, but I'll stay quiet for now. I'll stay quiet for now. Let's get into the podcast. Before I do, actually, big love to everyone who shared and reacted to the chat last week with Loki. It meant that I moved the podcast that was going to be last week to next week. It's an amazing chat. It's with Josh Weller, who's one of my favourite comedians and just, again, humans in the world. So that'll be out next week. But yeah, cheers for all the love on that. Obviously a very heavy topic and a big spike in the chat I had with Loki back in 2021 about the Israel-Palestine conflict. So yeah, cheers for all the love on that. I appreciate you all greatly. Yeah, let's... Let's get into this glorious, glorious conversation. This is Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 540. Let's hand this over to Emerald Fennell. Right, I'm here today with Emerald for now. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. How how are you finding this part of the uh, of of the project, the bit where you have to talk to people about it on end for for lengths of time? Do you enjoy this bit? Are you sick of this bit yet? Do you know whenever I heard people complaining about the like junket of it all? Yeah, the only familiarity I've had before this was like watching Notting Hill. <laughs> yeah, Hugh Grant as the horse and hound. You know, so that's. And, and you people kind of complain about it. And I always thought, oh my God, you know, like grow a pair. Yeah. And what I'm realizing now is 
what happens because you have the same conversation in five minute bits again and again, maybe 20 or 30 times in a morning. What actually happens is you start to have a kind of weird feeling, glitch feeling, um, because I think what happens is your brain thinks something's wrong yeah. because it's not used to saying the same thing over and over and over again. So it starts yeah. to compensate by questioning. So you have this kind of uncanny moment where you're talking and your brain's saying, no, no, you've said this, you've just said this. And you're like, no, I don't, no brain, I said it five minutes ago. I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Leave me. And so then you start to immediately lose your mind. But, you know, but that's fine. I sort of don't mind having lost my mind. In a way, it's slightly a relief, although it does make you feel a little bit apprehensive about the things that you say because you kind of become extra vulnerable and extra, your your defences aren't kind of up because your faculties aren't completely with you. Yeah, because you're you're saying the same thing over and over again. It gives you a new appreciation for when in the kind of old, and now really, I guess, but in the old days of of talk shows and whatever, when people would have that same anecdote that they tell over and over again, but they tell it amazingly. I'd always struggle with that kind of thing because I'd be in the back of my head thinking I'm being inauthentic because I've told the same anecdote in 10 interviews in a row. And it's like, but no, it's true. It is real. It's just the nature of promotion that makes it seemingly inauthentic to yourself. Oh, it is. And it does feel really enough. And also if you're like, I like, I love talking to people about yeah. anything, about everything. And I love this film. So I like, you know, talking to people about it. So I do want to have like a proper conversation every time. But then of course, you're right. You do then end up, you just unfortunately do end up with the same saying the exact same things every time, like a sort of little automaton. Yeah. Yeah. So I like, forgive me if I'm talking in a load of total nonsense no it's a joy and i love the film as well and i'm just excited to talk to you because i'm a big fan of of everything you you do really so we've got a lot to talk about but before moving into acting and screenwriting myself i was in music and there's a big thing in music of the of the difficult second album and this is your difficult second album of a film and that's heightened when the debut film has gone and like won an oscar and stuff like that so How just I want to talk about kind of the starting point of how you approach after all the furore of of Promising Young Woman, how you approach a a second film, I guess. What was your your thought process? Did you already know what you wanted to make? How did it come about? I think it helped that I already knew what I wanted to make and the way that I work is I sort of have imaginary worlds. It sounds so whimsical. It's kind of unbearably kind of twee manic pixie dream (laughs) nonsense. But I go to other places and I have all my life. And there are usually like five or six on the go at any time, some of them quite new, some of them years and years old. And they just eventually become the thing that I want to do next. And Saltburn was one of them. So it started, you know, probably seven or eight years ago. And it felt like the thing I wanted to do next. But also it's about, you know, you talk about the difficult second album. And I think absolutely, I think there's also a point where you can decide there's a kind of fork in the road. Well, not one, but there are many, many little ones. And there's a kind of decision of, you know, do I make the thing I want to make or do I, there are lots of amazing offers. Do I do something like that? Something completely different, you know, mm-hmm. for somebody else with other, you know, big star or whatever big budget. For me, that was the decision. The decision was like, I want to keep making the sorts of things like Promising a Woman, the sort of films that, you know, that really in a way that I want to watch, which are kind of messy and over the top and complicated. And, you know, it's, I guess... I suppose you decide if you want to kind of move from something more, something kind of that was esoteric and then became, I guess that's the thing, right? With music, you make something that is peculiar to you, that is sort of, that seems esoteric and then becomes mainstream. And then the question is, do I keep doing that thing, which is now mainstream? 
or do I do something else? Do I go pop or do I go like, I don't know, I don't know what the equivalent would be like a silent album. As of only the sound of like scratching claws on a, yeah. a bit of, I don't know, nylon, whatever it is. It's, it's So you're kind of like, it's just that thing of like, what do I want to be? What do I want to do? What do I want to say? All of that mm. stuff. And so, but for me, it was just like, well, I just love being in this world. I find this world so beguiling. I find it so arousing and complicated and sticky and weird. That's where Saltburn feels like the place I want to be. And then it was really only now in talking about it that it feels like, of course, that was what I wanted to make because we were in the middle of COVID. Yeah. And this is a film about touching or the inability to touch. Yeah. And about fluids and about yearning. And so it makes sense. It's one of those weird things where the thing that you're thinking, you know, it's that, you know, it's like anything, like a dream. Suddenly you can only really realize afterwards how straightforward the link is from. No, I completely understand. And you mentioned earlier, like in talking to people about stuff, I love conversations as well. And already there's so much in what you've said. I want to throw away all my notes and just and just just get into that. So we're going to go down that line to start with. Oh, good. I think it's really interesting what you were saying about the urge, like the the edict is always stay true to yourself, make what you want. But when you've only put out your first album or your first film, the you that they know is only a small part of you. So there's mm. so much that is true to yourself that might not be instantly, oh, well, that doesn't seem like an Emerald film or, or whatever else. It's like, oh, you've only seen one of them. You've only seen one part of this. But what I really want to ask about is where your head's at on that question now of what you were saying of, essentially, I think what you were posing was the choice between being a writer-director and being a director. So going off and doing another project that maybe, you know, has a big star attached or already has a story. How do you feel on that? Do you feel being the writer and director is key to you to create what you want to create? Or would you be interested in being a director of others' stories? I couldn't be a director of other stories. I don't think, I think that was what, you know, I, I don't, they're so entwined to me yeah. that I I don't know. I would have no confidence directing somebody else's work because the thing that I really want to do is kind of open the legs of something. Mm. And that has to come, that has to be a secret kind of private process first, I think. Yeah. And it has to be, it all has to come from a certain amount of like self-interrogation. That's what, that's why music, that's why any art that feels, I mean, you know, hopefully that even aspires to be meaningful, it needs to come from, well, for me, I was looking at somebody else's script. I'm sure there are the most sublime scripts in the world, but I would want, I'd still probably go back and I don't know, I'd want to sort of fiddle around to the extent Mm. that it wouldn't be, it needs to kind of be hatched in the dark in the corner for it to be interesting to me, I think. Yeah. Whether that's successful or not, I don't know, but that's the urge. The urge is private. And so then, you know, and then then you can go about making it public. But I think that's what interests me. It allows you a certain amount of, of, of freedom, right? And not in just that, that basic level, freedom to explore and experiment because it's your own work that you're... Freedom totally. to mess it up. Freedom totally. to destroy it and rebuild it. Whereas if it's someone else's, there's such discomfort and on disrespecting anyone or... Totally. And I am, you know, I am a people pleaser, which is partly why I don't, you know, I have to kind of keep things to myself is that I'm so pliable, so pathetically (laughs) pliable. (laughs) And so I need to to protect 
anything of myself, I have to kind of make sure I, I'm really careful about not talking about things and not showing things. Because also, because what I want is praise. Mm. What I want is stroking. And that's such a kind of immediate gratification. But then, of course, you lose interest or you kind of lose your way and you, I don't know. So, but yeah, absolutely. If it was somebody else's work, I'd feel I wouldn't, what I can do, what I was able to do with Promising a Woman and with Saltburn was say, you know, trust me. Mm. It may not work. It may be fucking a disaster, whatever. But this is what I, this is how I feel. I think this is the right thing. So it's my fault. It's my fault if it explodes in all of our faces. It's my fault. And so, you know, you're absolutely right. If it was somebody else's work, I would feel much more anxious about doing that. You mentioned having a number of worlds that you, you disappear into. Is there one that you're holding off or protecting? I, I kind of asked this because I've, I've got a script that I've had to take off the table because there started to be interest in it. And I was like, no, that's my second film. I need, this is the first film. That has to, I need that one to be my second. I don't see that as my first film as a, as a writer, di- director. Therefore, here's the first one and this is, is the world. So it was interesting that's to interesting. hear you speak of those multiple worlds. And it instantly made me wonder, oh, which one are you, are you hiding from us until until the time is right. That's so interesting because what you're describing is so impressive to me because basically you're thinking strategically. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. And also that is being a musician, right? That's basically which single do we release first? You don't release the best one first, right? You release the kind of one that's great that's a little like foreplay and then you bring out the banger. So people are already familiar with you so you're not just like a one-hit wonder. Yeah, yeah. So there's like a strategy to like music release, I guess. And and you're absolutely right. That makes total sense. I mean, it's not very strategic the way that I think it's, it's there is a, there's a moment when the thing itself is ready. Mm-hmm. And I know that it's ready, whichever thing. And so the thing that I'm doing next now that I'm starting to kind of do next is not the thing I thought it would be. There was a thing I thought I was going to do next and it turns out not to be the next thing. And it's just being pulled. And it depends also, you know, when you make something, it just, I don't know, it, you feel so differently after it's finished. Mm. You're, just, you're just changed yourself so profoundly, right? After you've made something. Yeah, yeah. And then so much of it is also you're kind of at war with yourself. Yeah. So much of it is like learning to sort of feel proud of yourself and feel happy with the decisions you made and not be constantly using the next thing as a way of kind of correcting mistakes you've made. You know, it's sort of being mm. kind of treating everything as the thing itself and difficult it's really hard like yeah. i'm amazed i mean why did you take that second thing off the table what is it about the first one that you think what about it? you don't need to talk about it but what is the thing about it that you want to be the first thing that people think of you oh that's exactly it. the first one i feel is so distinct is such a distinct voice and i think it's that's the important bit to kind of go here's the kind of films i want to make mm-hmm. And then, you know, everything else can develop along the way. But yeah, it's, it, it, it was exactly that. I kind of, it was more as soon as I started on the one that I want to be the first that everything else kind of had to get pushed back because I was like, I no, see. this needs to be the opening statement. But yeah. So, it's so you're thought. more excited by this thing than you are about the other one? Excited in different ways. Yeah, yeah. At Got the it. moment, 100%. It's, again, it's a nightmare to my agents because I'm getting, because of a few of the scripts I've had during the rounds, I'm getting people coming in and asking me if I'd be interested in writing on this or on that. And I'm like, no, no, no. The only thing in my world at the moment is this. And it's, yeah, again, that goes against the the strategic or logical and goes straight over to the artistic over-obsession that, no, the only thing in my world right now is getting this film made. So, yeah. 
it's interesting. What is the like, given that you do so many different things and so successfully, what's the itch you want to scratch with this particular? Like, I don't, again, I mean, more generally, what's the drive? It's the, 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 the way I describe it a little bit. And again, this is all being super vague, but you know, it's not a podcast about my film projects. Um, it is now. The, 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 the exciting thing about it, being a huge film nerd, this script, this sounds so film student, so brace yourself, but this script does something I've not seen on screen before. Right. And that's a buzz. I always use Groundhog Day as an example of a film that became a genre. Like Groundhog Day films are now a genre and now a thing because it did something in there that just hasn't been presented before. And I don't think all films should do that or need to do that at all. Like it's why I said not more excited about this, but a different kind of excitement. And it's because of that. It's got something there that I'm like, I've not seen this. And that excites me. So it's like a technical, a bit of like technical structural play. So like sort of... um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is my yeah, favourite. Yeah, 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 exactly. Of, it, that's interesting. That's a great so kind example of, diffi- of it. Technical difficulty and structural complication. That makes sense. Yeah. But as, I mean, uh, so uh, bringing it back to you, as I'm, I'm, I'm getting all, all fumbly over my own excitement now of my project, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm always hugely excited to hear what a f- script was when you sat down to start it versus what it ended up as and when I finished Saltburn which again I fucking adore there's so much I want to get into on that because there's particular parts that I just think feel iconic but we'll get to that I came out of it thinking I don't know what this film started as if you know what I mean and we're promising a young woman although the twists and turns and everything all took me off on different directions I felt I could at least imagine the film you sat down to write, and then how it developed and, f- and flourished. But Saltburn, I couldn't quite place or imagine the film you, you sat down to write. So what was that journey, I guess? What was, yeah, how did that go? Or was That's it all, already kind of actualized in your head that here's the full journey we're going on? Absolutely. Yeah. So it was, I mean, in many ways, exactly the same as Promising a Woman in the sense that it was always, it was always the film that you see. Yeah. I love that. But that's also because when I, by the time I sit down to write, it's finished already. Yeah. So I have been working on it relentlessly in my own mind, living in the world and licking the bathtub and all of it myself for years and years before I sit down. Yeah. I've discarded, you know, whole characters, whole worlds, whole things, still scenes by the time I sit down. And so that when I sit down, I, I try to keep as much of that sense of once you've written it down, it becomes the written word, not the spoken word. You know, there's mm. that moment you write it down, it's the written word. And then if you're lucky and you work with the actors that I've worked with, they come and make it the living word again. But if you rework, if you take, if you keep working on the words on the page, for me, they really start to lose their vitality. They start to lose their kind of natural rhythm and, you know, the rhythm of speech and the rhythm Mm. of the way that a particular character speaks, all of that kind of stuff. And then it's harder for an actor, actually, because what's happened is you've gotten kind of besotted with the word on the page and that's not really useful when it comes to a script for me. So I do try as much as I can to keep hold of it in my head, to live it in my head, to have it on the page as the kind of breathless living thing that it is in my head and then try and preserve that and then you know, wait until the actors are in to then really start looking at being comfortable enough to work on the text again. So when you've got actual people in the room living. Because it's amazing how quickly things become. And also I'm naturally 
I'm not a subtle. I'm, I have no interest in subtlety. Yeah. It's like profoundly boring. Yeah. No, I don't think it's boring. I love it. There are things that I love. I love restraint. I love subtlety in other people's work. But for me, I don't think it's the only virtue. And it's very mm. fast becoming the only virtue of art is how close we can get it to real life. Yeah. I think that's, I, I think particularly in, in, in British cinema and TV, I think there's so much British drama I absolutely adore, but it's so reliant or so dedicated to realism. Whereas that's, as you say, that can be amazing and beautiful, but it's not the only, only thing totally. that we should be exploring and feeling. Exactly. And I think that's the really, that's totally it is these are things that I love more than anything that I, you know, that it might, some of my favorite things in the world, both literature and film and telly, all of those things. But there is still room for the Baroque. There is still room for, you know, for things that are, yeah, that are a bit more expressionistic or are a bit more, you know, that, that sort of acknowledge the suspension of disbelief, that tension mm. a bit more. And so, um, so yeah, that's kind of also part of it for me is, is sort of trying to keep as much as I can that sense of that something isn't so polished that it's frictionless or something yeah. isn't so real that it's sort of lost the ability to be kind of a, an allegory or a, you know, or a fairy tale to some degree. Yeah, I, 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 I loved hearing you speak then about it being finished before it hits the page. Back in my spoken word days, I'd almost write every piece while I was driving because I couldn't note anything down. And you've got a natural editing process there because the stuff that doesn't stick wasn't good enough. It was like the stuff that when I finally get round to it, it's gone over in my head so many times. That's the good stuff. Whereas if I had been able to write it down, I guess I've not got the d discipline to draft and redraft and redraft. If I've, I've, I've written it down, I will be in some way mm -hmm. loyal to that. Whereas, as said, if it's just going over in your head, the, there'll be loads that was once in there, was once oh. in the story that's just gone because it, it naturally went. It naturally went. It didn't stick. And also, again, but I think like what you're saying is so important too is rhythm. Like we are creatures of rhythms, so pretentious. That's what this is where I like become a sort of drunk bore, at a, like a coked up bore at a party because I'm it. so tired. I'm just talking absolute nonsense. So like, so, sorry, everyone. But it is that thing of like, you know, I am bit pentameter is our heartbeat. That's why we remember it better. There are natural rhythms to the way that we speak. Everyone has a rhythm peculiar to them. And so speaking to yourself in your mind language, the way it lives in your mind is so different to the way that it is on the page. And so I completely agree with you. The editing process, the natural kind of breathing rhythm of speech, mm. you know, to preserve that is really important. Even if that does mean things are a little less, you know, and it's not to say that like a lot of the, I mean, I think in lots of ways I can be quite kind of like verbose in my writing or a little bit sort of like Baroque or whatever, but, but I don't know. It's, yeah, you don't want it to just feel kind of like chewing gum, like you've chewed too many times. It's just sort of dissolved. Yeah. Lost its like inherent give. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, I'm, I'm really curious, again, having heard that these stories, these, these worlds have existed for a time, I want to know your process of working with casting and casting directors, Carmel Cochran's Cochran. work, amazing with Robert Eggers and mm. numerous other people, just so mm. good at just finding these almost realised characters as soon as they, they step on screen. But obviously people like, like Barry has been killing it for a minute. J Jacob, I thought you and Mitchell was a standout for me as just this weird little character. But 
at what point do the characters in your head start to become actors? What is the casting process, I guess? I mean, Carmel's absolutely incredible. I think once it's finished and I start really thinking about, you know, the fact that it's sort of going to be a physical reality, then I think, you know, you have an idea. The barrier just couldn't get out of my head. Mm -hmm. I'd seen him and things and I just sort of thought like, he just had the thing that I love so much, which is he's so sticky. He's so difficult to pin down. Yeah. It's so, he's so like enigmatic and he's so human in that he's all things at once. And yeah. there's, it's just, I don't know. He's just so exceptional. So I, so I thought I met him. I like to meet people first to get the measure because I kind of want to know if we're going to get into it mm-hmm. and have a real conversation, kind of be able to like be as honest as we can be given that we're all dirty liars. Barry can't oh. not be honest. I'm convinced of it. I, I had him on the podcast oh, years know. ago. And Barry is, I said, I've only had one, we've had a few interactions on socials, but just had him on the podcast years ago. And before we got started, we were just into it, agreeing and arguing about MMA at the time, I think it was. And just really, yeah. He's so amazing. He's so amazing. And I, I only laugh because I think that he, he, like me, would admit, though, that he's also very capable of right stretching things. that's why i liked <laughs> yeah. him why i liked him i think the first thing he said was i think that's what you know because i was talking a lot about honesty yeah. with people for this film and he he was honest well he was sort of honest in the way that i think i well i hope to be honest too which is that he's honest in his ability seamless ability to kind of lie to deceive i love it yeah because that's what we all do all the yeah. time it's just whether yeah. you're kind of willing to admit it or not especially if you're you know, working in shoebiz. And I just think, I don't know, I just love him. He's really special. And and then, you know, it was about obviously Rosamond and mm-hmm. and Richard are so brilliant. And I just, you know, they were just immediately obvious. I think, One of my, my noted questions isn't even a question. It's just, Rosamond. can we just talk about how wonderful Richard and Rosamond just both are as, as, mm-hmm. as people in existence? They're just, yeah. Astounding, right? Yeah, we can. We can absolutely talk about that. They're, they're amazing. <laughs> Just amazing. They are amazing. They are amazing, amazing, amazing. They are so clever. So clever. So funny. So surprising. Mm. It's the surprise that you're looking for. It's the thing that we all do every day, which is like, oh, that was that was weird. You know, that was yeah. it's the thing that isn't necessarily the like consistent characteristic that's interesting. Yeah. And that's what Richard has always been a genius at, that kind of sudden moment of, malevolence or mania or tenderness he's so sort of yeah he has these flashes of wonder and Rosmond's so kind of adept at you know the doubleness of everyone the doubleness of people and the characters that they make Mm. and I think Rosmond is so self-aware so funny so like devastatingly funny and clever she knows the performance that she herself as a woman as an actress as Rosamund Pike as a mother whatever she knows what those performances entail and so when it came to Elspeth, who could easily have been just a kind of arch, just sort of nonsense of a character. You know, what she, what Rosamond kind of understood profoundly and made so special is that she herself is aware. She is aware of who she is mm. and who she is. And she is always working against that. And she's always needling people. And, you know, she's so aware of the effect she has on people and the words that she's using. And it's all deliberate. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you know, but they're all amazing. And then, but then with Carmel, you know, the thing that's so amazing with Carmel is like, I'd never seen Archie or Alison, who play Farley and Phoenicia before, mm-hmm. and Carmel said, I think you need to see these guys. And they both auditioned and they were just beyond anything I'd ever seen before. Ewan as well. I mean, Ewan, I'm obsessed with Ewan. 
Yeah. What a genius. Or, or, or Ewan just gave me, me great embarrassment because I reached out to Carmel to say, that guy, that character was amazing. And I hadn't twigged that he's in House of the Dra- I know. Dragons. Absolutely astounding. I just hadn't put it together. But that's that's testament to the character he played there. That I was like, I love this this obscure unknown dude. And then I'm like, oh no, it's, it's <laughs> he's in one of the biggest the shows English. in the world. Of course, yeah. yeah. But I think, but that's <laughs> it. Is that like, and and you know, and Archie just did this audition where he's he was yeah. eating a packet of crisps, doing it. I'd written a kind of monologue. We weren't allowed to show the script to anyone because you know it's Hollywood. Yeah. Um, so I so I wrote these little monologues for people to kind of do that were sort of based on the character, but weren't from this. And he and he was doing this monologue, and he was eating a pack of crisps while doing it, and then choked, but kept going. But in a really, it was just brilliant. It was just brilliant. He's just one of those people who I was like, oh wow, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. this so this um, this person absolutely is like a charisma machine. And Alison just did something. You know, she was just devastating. She's just devastating she's yeah. so good and that's that's all Carmel you know she so so it's that thing it's a combination of you know you yourself have this idea but also you know what you're looking for you know you have you, maybe the bigger characters or the, the kind of larger parts perhaps you kind of have an idea of you know who you might want to have but then someone like Carmel is just it's knowing it's it's interpreting what you mean mm. when you say this person is you know whatever it is you need yeah again all of them are absolutely astounding Farley as 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 such was one that I was like I must know them from somewhere because again mm. they just like just just the presence on screen as as that character was just instant yeah Archie's just so incredible I mean honestly it is like yeah and just just everything from the get-go is just profound understanding yeah so that when you start from there you just get more interesting stuff because you're not spending all the time trying to find the cat. It's just like, they've got it. Yeah. They have got it. I can and hand this over that. to you now. Um, well, and you have yeah. this weird like telepathy moment because like, yeah, because you're like, so much of writing is your, you know, sort of split personality disorder. These are all your people. They're all you. You're there. You're there. You're them. You're Oliver. You're kind of, you're all of these people and suddenly somebody else is that person it's such a kind of fascinating experience it's like you're both the person but neither of you is and you're both bringing something different and it's just so yeah it's so thrilling when like someone like Jacob comes in you know Jacob's part in the film probably in many ways is the hardest because it's just you know on the face of it he's just the beautiful boy Mm. and the temptation I think for people to kind of play that up or lean into the arch lean into the kind of Evelyn War sort of of it all and what Jacob did, which is what I was looking for, and so far to find him, he was just some bloke. Yeah. He was just some gorgeous bloke who was nice up to a point, up to a point. Yeah. And there's moments of almost embarrassment of being so gorgeous oh. and so wealthy. Oh. And so, you know. Totally. And it All instantly of those comes things. to mind is when he's saying about um, dinner being like a black tie thing. And it's it's thrown in in such a not wanting to make a deal about it. And it, yeah. I said, in such an ordinary bl- bl- bloke way that it's just, yeah. It's like, it's the kind of, no, it's it's all of those things. And then, it, yeah, yeah, it's black tie. Yeah. Of course, I always do an impression of his silly accent. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's just the way I talk. Of course. <laughs> I'm just basically doing an impression of myself. Amazing. But no, but it's all of that stuff. It's just like, you know, and then the detail, the detail, the jolly detail of being able to say, oh no, he's bad at kissing. Mm. You know, Felix doesn't have to be good at kissing. He's never yeah. had to be good at anything. So he's just <laughs> yeah. bad at kissing. Or, you yeah. know, the way he reads Harry Potter, because everyone's reading Harry Potter because the last one had just come out in the summer of 2007. You know, 
the way he reads it is like he's never read a book before. Like this is, it's like he's reading it like he's reading Hamlet. <laughs> it's yeah. like <laughs> just that stuff, you know, that's what you get. <laughs> then you get these people and you're there and you're like, of course, you know, little things like, of course, Felix is scared of ghosts. Mm. You know, yeah, yeah. It's just all these little things and it's just a joy. It's a joy. Oh, how important was the recent but not recent time of it all happening? So it being the, those those early 2000s, because um, the music, as mm. said, the Harry Potter books and all this kind of thing, all of that seems key to it. And I think there's, there's, there's something really interesting in taking a story out of the immediacy so that it doesn't feel like it's going to date, already dating it, making the conscious choice to, date it in some way, but not go into the 70s or 80s or 90s or, or whatever else now. What was, yeah, how did that come about as your, as your setting? Well, first, it was kind of a necessary part of the structure because it's a kind of, you know, Saltburn's a take on sort of British country house gothic tradition of like Bride's Head and the Go-Between and Atonement and Rebecca and all of those sorts of things. So it, they always start with looking back. They always yeah. start with the protagonist yeah, yeah, looking yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the past is another country. Last night I went, dreamt I went to Mandalay again. You know, that's yeah, that's the structure. And so you want to stay true to that structure when you're when you're making that sort of film. So there's that. So you, I always knew that it had to be set in the past. I think you're right. For me, it's yes, it's predominantly summer 2007. This film, and and that's you know when we shot it, it was kind of 15 years ago exactly. And the thing about 15 years ago is wherever you are in time, is it's completely uncool. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, you know, if we'd gone too far, even if we'd gone like early 2000s or like Y2K, that's all back. Yeah. And if you go earlier than that, still, it's too far away to be kind of effective as a satire. And now we don't know what our stuff is. You know, we, we're not self-aware enough to know the things about ourselves that are putting us so distinctly into our own time. Because yeah. you and me talking here today think of ourselves as unique creatures with our own style and our own but we we're not at all we will look back at pictures of ourselves now and think oh my god how unbearably 2023 yeah, of course you know we know not what those tells will be so it's humanizing you're taking beautiful people and unbelievably rich people and you're showing that they you know they watch the ring and they have <laughs> they wear live strong bracelets and they have bad fake tan and the jeans and aren't good and it sort of reminds us that the, it's the sort of structures, I guess, it's the places that are permanent. People kind of, there is sort of rotating cast of people, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, we, I mean, we're going to run out of time soon and I need to talk about the birthday party fancy dress scene because I think Barry's look is like, speaking of going back in times, it feels like if I was watching it in the 90s, that would be a poster in Athena. Because um, his look just felt so iconic and so distinct. <laughs> Tell me about how that comes together. Does that come together in your head in the story, or does that start to come together with S- Sophie and Susie, who did the the the, pr- the production design and the costume design? How does that all come together? Because it's the horns and the it's just everything. It just there's so many scenes there that you could take a still, and again, it could be a poster. It could be it'd be on a student's wall. Well, I think also that's the hope. You know, you it's a visual medium. A film yeah. needs to work as, you know, if you put it on mute, it should you should be able to understand the story, I think, you know. Yeah, yeah. Part of what's the, the, the pleasure of it. And so 
absolutely, it's a combination of all things. I mean, the Midsummer Night's Dream Party, we knew that it was Midsummer Night's Dream Party. So, you know, unfortunately, Venetia's dress, you only catch a glimpse of at the beginning. She's cobweb and she's wearing a dress made up entirely of Swarovski crystal cobwebs spider hanging down. It's so amazing. And then, you know, and it's sort of character too. So it's sort of Felix, you know, Felix wouldn't give a fuck about his costume because again, he doesn't need to. So he's just like bunged on some some wings because he's probably seen like Romeo and Juliet, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Yes, of course. And that's the extent of it. He's just wearing like, you know, his jeans. And and then you have Barry, who I imagined a little bit like the boy from the go-between who's given his special suit by the family. You know, the family give him the suit and it's the best day of his life. It's his birthday. And I kind of always felt like maybe Elspeth had had the suit made for Barry because I always thought Barry, you know, if, if we're living in the world of, of um, Midsummer Night's Dream, Barry's, you know, the changeling boy, the boy that the sort of the not real child. Yeah. And so it felt like he kind of, you know, needed to be part of part of the family, but not part of it, you know, sort of even more like maybe kind of overdressed slightly sinister part of the natural world somehow kind of disappearing into that maze you know and then Susie's amazing amazing production design the minotaur in the middle of the Hmm. minotaur in the middle of the maze which which she built was based on Barry's sort of physicality so exact same posture as Barry similar proportions and so you know so Barry turns up with the horns and you know it feels like yeah I mean Spoiler alert, but it's sort of, you know, the hunter, the hunted becomes the hunter, isn't it, with the deer? Yeah, of course. So uh, I'm, I'm curious as to how you feel film compares to TV on the, on the kind of creating side of things, because it feels like there's a beauty in the completion of making these worlds in Promising Young Woman and in Saltburn, where you make these... You, you start, middle and end these worlds, regardless of how you jump around them, whereas TV can often seem more more endless. And obviously, a, a Killing Eve was must have been amazing to, to, uh, to work on at that time. So, yeah, what's your variation and ex- experience there, I guess? I think I'm... Uh, I mean, Killing Eve was absolutely incredible. I only did season two. So in a way, in, mm. in a funny way, it was almost like a film in the sense it's sort of a complete, you know, each person had a different series. So it kind of felt maybe a bit more finite, even if it wasn't, you know, sort of, of course. kind of an unusual experience for television, I suppose. I mean, for me, you know, as somebody who wrote novels, books, you know, before this, I think that what I really love about film, I think you can be more, for me, just creatively, I love telly. I mean, I watch an ungodly amount of telly and yeah. all telly and I love all of it equally every 90 day fiance everything that exists on the television I'm pretty much have watched it and I love it all I think but for me for making things I think that because I like worlds that are slightly heightened things that are necessarily a little incomplete a little sticky you know the confinement is important mm. I think people I think it would become relentless you know that there's a certain amount of There are certain styles, I think, and certain genres that are better in a sort of contained space. Yeah, and 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 really the thing for me is I don't know the answers to any questions. I mean, I don't mean that generally. I mean, the only thing that you can make when you make a film or anything is like, this thing interests me. This thing has been niggling at me. This thing has been an itch that I want to scratch and it's freaking me out. And the more I scratch it, the itchier it becomes. What do you think? And like, that's all you can, that's what I like to do is to say, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why I find this so sexy. Yeah. Here. I love it. 
I love it. That's completely how I've always felt approaching art sh- should be. It's like, here's a topic. Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> I've, yeah. I've not got the answer to this topic, but I don't look how know. fascinating this topic is. And and also look how difficult it is. Yeah. Look how mixed up we all are. Look how complicated this is to just as an experience to watch. Look how different every person in this room, the yeah. relationship with this is so personal, so different. Like that has to be part of it. And it's a really interesting thing, you know, going back to the very beginning of this, when you said, what's it like? This process is difficult. Not when I have conversations like this, which are lovely, but what's difficult is I often am asked to explain myself. Yeah. You know, like I'm in the headmaster's <laughs> office, explain yeah. yourself. And I think, but I can't, and I never said I could. No. All I can show you by way of explanation is this thing that I made that I spent years thinking about, that every yeah. detail of which is has been poured over, that every decision has been like made with absolute, you know, with every kind of, you know, bit of diligence and thought. Anything I say after that isn't useful or, ne- or I actually know less. Yeah. I've definitely had songs that the audience has found a better meaning in the, than I ever had any idea of. I've, I've definitely had pieces I've, I've written that I've gone, oh shit, I wish I meant that. Maybe subconsciously I did mean that, but that's beautiful. <laughs> well, that's really good. <laughs> but, but also I think that you can mean lots of things at once. You know, yeah. the thing is, is that I think there are lots of moments in this film, I hope, if it's effective, if it works, that are at all at once, that, you know, that in the theatre... Someone will laugh hysterically. Someone will laugh with embarrassment. Someone will be mortified. Someone will be turned on. And all of them are right. Yeah. Because it's all the same thing. It's all, every moment of the world is just a mortifying, sexy. Yeah. As I said before, it's just kind of, so it's, yeah, it's 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 difficult because I think also maybe as a woman, as a woman, she says, again, <laughs> you are expected to have a, personal and political relationship with your work that men aren't Mm -hmm. expected to. Yeah. Men are allowed to have thoughts and to interrogate themes and ideas without taking personal responsibility and being becoming the spokesperson for that thing. Yeah. And it's an interesting feeling because so much of the time I can't help but be drawn in because I care so deeply about these subjects. I care so deeply about sexual assault. I care so deeply about this kind of relationship we have, the sadomasochistic relationship we have at the moment with, you know, things and people who have total disdain for us and humanity. I I care deeply about these things. So I want to be drawn in because I'm a sucker, but I don't fucking know anything. I'm not making documentaries. I'm not Mm -hmm. making, what I know is, I hope what I know is how to make a film. Yeah. I love it. I love it. We do have to wrap wrap things up now. I normally end by asking what's next and the answer is normally I can't really talk about it. Um, <laughs> but where you mentioned TV there, I just want to ask, did you ever watch The Circle? The the, the Channel 4 reality series, The Circle? Oh my God, when some people were talking to fake people? Yeah. No, just, I just didn't. Just speaking of, 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 of you and Barry kind of reveling in, in, in the admittance of the ability to deceive points, I think The Circle is the best reality show that I've oh. ever seen. Um, oh, I'm going to watch it. And part of it is that because you start by hating everyone who's being deceptive and then at points you're like, well, no, I like them for being, I understand that deception. And there's there's so much in it that I think you don't get in a lot of other re- reality shows. But, but yeah, totally. I'm going to end with a big recommendation there instead of... For the circle. Great. Yeah, I'm going to watch it. Give that a look. Well, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. So I appreciate you taking the time. Of course. Thank you so much for taking the time.
You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was just astounding. The weather outside is fr- is frightful, so get yourself in a cinema at the weekend to see Saltburn. It's so good. As you heard, we could have talked for hours on end. Hours on end. I love the film. I love Emerald. I love Barry. I, lo- I, 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 I love you guys. I love you all, man. Thank you for tuning in. I'll be back next week with someone else I love, the wonderful Josh Weller. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Titter.